If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Genesis chapter 29. If you need a Bible, you can grab one off of our welcome table. Uh, it'll start on page 24 there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you, you can, you're welcome to, to keep that Bible from the welcome table. We want you to have a hard copy in your hand. Some of you might like to, to read it on your phone. That's great. But there's something about um, just picking it up and, and seeing God's Word, holding it in your hands, uh, and, and not being distracted by other apps on your phone, uh, this helps me focus straight on, on, on God's Word. And so I want to encourage you to, to grab a Bible and bring one if you don't have one or, or you haven't brought one. Page 24 in those Welcome Table Bibles. This story uh, is going to sound similar to chapter 24 in a number of ways. Okay? If you remember chapter 24, that was the chapter that Abraham sent his servant uh, to Haran to go find a wife for his son Isaac. Now here in chapter 29, Isaac's son Jacob will arrive in Haran to find a wife for himself. But as we work our way through this chapter, it won't take long for us to understand, to notice one really big glaring difference between chapter 24 and chapter 29. And that is, in chapter 24, and Abraham's servant was completely dependent upon the Lord. If you remember everything through there, it was like you couldn't, you, there was no way that you could say God was not involved, right? God won't be mentioned one time in this chapter, not once. But that's on purpose. That does not mean that God is not working in this situation. It's a good reminder for us all that God's silence does not mean God's absence. God's silence does not mean God's absence. And so I want to pray and ask the Lord for help in this passage this morning, and then we'll dig in. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word that exposes the realities in our hearts and our need for you, and then does not just leave us hanging there, but shows us how you have worked to bring us to yourself. Lord, we pray that through this story with Jacob, you would draw us nearer to you, uh, deeper in trust of what you're doing in our lives. Again, for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you were with us last week, we, we saw from Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel, this is where God revealed himself to Jacob and he saw the stairway or ladder going up to heaven. From that encounter, uh, we, we, we saw that God is way more committed to us than we are to him, right? God is way more committed to us than we are to him. Today we'll see that sometimes God's commitment to us is painful. It's painful for us, but it's always, always, always for our good. And, and so here's, here's our big idea this morning. In his grace, God disciplines his children so that we learn to depend on him instead of ourselves. In his grace, God disciplines his children so that we learn to depend on him instead of ourselves. Let's dig in. Genesis 29, verses 1 through 8. Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and he saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it because the sheep were watered from this well. But a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. And then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men at the well, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. 
Do you know Laban, grandson of Nahor? Jacob asked them. They answered, we know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said, and here is his daughter Rachel coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, look, it's still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock and then go out and let them graze. But they replied, we can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. So after Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel, he continued on his way. We're not told anything else about his journey until he gets here. And in verse 1, it says that he went to the eastern country, which is a term that was often used for territories that were outside of the land of Canaan, outside of the promised land, even if they weren't directly east of it, which is the case for Haran. If you remember, Haran is where Abraham came from, into the promised land. It's, it's, it's north, uh, but the, the, the term applies here. Um, and so far in Genesis, east, we've, we've seen this direction show up uh, several times. Uh, it's been associated with a departure from God's good plan, from God's presence, from God's care. This is a reminder for us that Jacob is, is, is going into a place where God is not worshipped as the true sovereign God. But we know from the last chapter that God has promised to go with Jacob wherever Jacob goes, Right? And just like Abraham's servant in chapter 24, Jacob comes to a well. But instead of talking to the Lord and asking him for guidance as Abraham's servant did, remember when he got there, he, he, he prayed. Jacob talked to these men at the well and he asked them where they came from. Now, before we get to listen in on their conversation, we're given some important background information here. These men were shepherds. Uh, and they had gathered at the well to water the sheep, but there's this large stone over the opening of the well, okay? It's too big for any one man to move it, and so it was, it was so big, it took all of them. Once they got all the flocks together, then it took all of the shepherds to move this stone out of the way, and so they didn't want to do it more than once. They didn't want to try it, and so they would wait until all the flocks would gather and then move this stone and then water the sheep. There were three flocks of sheep there already, but apparently they're waiting on more flocks because the men had not rolled away the stone when Jacob showed up and said, hello. Now, they weren't related to him, but he greets them as brothers. This is a common greeting in that day. It's a gesture of goodwill back then. And when Jacob found out that they came from Haran, he, this is like good news to him, right? Remember, this is, a, this is over a 500-mile journey, and he's been traveling by himself, and he finally comes to a place where he finds people, and guess what? They know his uncle. The place he's trying to go, the people he's trying to go to. He asked him if they know his uncle Laban, and not only did they know his uncle, but they pointed out Laban's daughter Rachel, who was on her way up to the well to water Laban's sheep. And for whatever reason, in that moment, Jacob didn't respond to their mention of Rachel, but instead he basically told them that they weren't doing their job right. He says, listen, what are you, do what are you waiting for? The, the, these, these sheep shouldn't be here. It's the middle of the day. Give them a drink and get back to the fields. They should be eating right now. But these guys weren't going anywhere. They weren't, they weren't budging the heavy stone until all the flocks were there. And so the stone stayed in place. That's an important detail. And we'll see why as we continue on. Look at verse 9. While he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. 
He told Rachel he was her father's relative, Rebecca's son. She ran and told her father. Verse 9 is reminiscent of the first time that Abraham's servant met Rebecca, Jacob's mom, back in chapter 24. You remember what happened? He prayed for the Lord to show him the woman who would become Isaac's wife. And it says, before he had finished speaking, there was Rebecca. Verse 9, here while Jacob is speaking to the shepherds, before he had finished speaking, there was Rachel. That's the first hint that, that she's the one who would become his wife. The second hint that we get is this note in, in verse 9 that Rachel was a shepherdess. This is an unusual job for a woman in that day, and, and, but most of the, of the ones who carried that job were young and unmarried. So before he stopped speaking, here's Rachel, and she was a shepherdess. She's available, okay? This is what we're being told. Jacob's response to seeing Rachel in verses 10 and 11 reveals God's providential hand. God is guiding him. God's not mentioned anywhere in this chapter, but we can see God's hand leading Jacob along here. Even if Jacob doesn't acknowledge it the way Abraham's servant did after finding Rebekah, with supernatural strength, Jacob rolled the stone away by himself. This stone that took all of the other men together to move. He's pretty excited. In chapter 24, it was his mother, Rebecca, who watered the servants' camels, but here then, it's Jacob who waters the sheep of his mother's brother, Laban. Now, the kiss he gave to Rachel, this isn't a romantic one, but instead, it's a warm greeting. Again, he'd been uh, on, on a long journey by himself. He finally came to some shepherds who knew his family, and here comes some of his relatives up. And so this is a warm kiss of, of greeting. He was so overcome with emotion that he broke down and wept. And then after he explained to Rachel who he was, she then ran and told her father, Laban. Look at verse 13. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. And then, he took him then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Now, this is a familiar scene for Laban. Back in chapter 24, it was his sister Rebecca who had run back to the house to tell them about what had happened. And now, it's his own daughter who ran back to tell him about his sister's son. Laban greeted Jacob with a kiss, uh, just as Jacob had done with, with Rachel, minus the weeping. He came out and he embraced him. They talked and he, and he realized, this is my family. Now, it does say that Jacob told him the rest of the story, but we know Jacob, right? The deceiver. I'm willing to bet that Jacob left a few details out on how he got there. Remember? I'm, I'm willing to bet that he left the part out about deceiving his father Isaac and the fact that his older brother Esau wants to kill him because he stole his blessing and his mom sent him there for his own safeguarding. I bet Isaac, or, uh, uh, Jacob 
is playing the same card his mom played and said, hey, my dad wants me to come here and find a wife. Verse 14 says that Jacob had been there for a month. The Hebrew literally says, for a month of days. If you remember from at the end of chapter 27, Rebecca told Jacob to run away and stay with his uncle Laban. You remember what she said? For a few days. For a few days until, I, until Esau uh, cools off in those few days and doesn't want to kill you anymore. The fact that those few days had already turned into a month of days shows us that even with all her scheming, Rebecca's plans for her son do not outweigh God's plans for her son. You'll just be gone for a few days. A month later, Jacob's still there. You ever had your plans changed by the Lord? Apparently, while Jacob had been staying with his uncle, he'd also been working for him. No doubt that when Laban heard that Jacob had single-handedly moved this giant stone from the well and then watered his sheep, he wanted to keep Jacob there as long as possible and put that strength and service to good use, right? This word work in uh, verse 15 can also be translated as serve. Depending on your English translation, it might say serve there. And in that sense, this draws out the irony of this scene. If you remember, before Jacob and Esau were born, back in chapter 25, God told Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. And when Isaac blessed Jacob in chapter 27, he said, may peoples serve you and you be, your master, or you be master over your relatives. In other words, may your relatives serve you, right? But what's happening here? It's Jacob who was serving the ones who were supposed to be serving him. Verse 15 is the first of six times in this passage that, meant, that mentioned Jacob working or serving Laban. And each one emphasizes this, uh, this irony of Jacob's position and highlights the grace of God's discipline in his life. Remember from last week that God had already promised to be Jacob's God and to remain with him and to protect him and to provide for him, but Jacob wanted God to prove it before he would trust him. Remember that? And so God obliged. But this, his proof would come by patiently and graciously stripping Jacob of his self-reliance and his self-centeredness and bringing him to a place of humility and dependence upon God alone. God is silent in this chapter, but he is not absent. He's working in Jacob's life. It's going to take a while for Jacob to learn this lesson because when, he's, when his uncle told him of, uh, to name his wages. Jacob saw that as an opportunity to serve himself. And in verse 16 and 17, they give us a hint about what or who he wanted from his uncle. We already know that Rachel was Laban's daughter, but now we find out that, that he also had another daughter named Leah. And Leah, we're told, was the older daughter, while Rachel was the younger daughter. That description is deliberate. Because we are already aware that Jacob was the younger brother who took the birthright and the blessing from his older brother Esau. And so the mention of the age order here in verse 16 gives us a hint that it's this younger sister who will also take precedence over the older sister. Now we already got hints in, back in verse 9 that Rachel was probably going to become Jacob's wife. But just in case we missed all the emphasis on Rachel, we're given another hint here in verse 17 by the physical description of the two women 
that favors Rebecca over Leah. Look at verse 18. Let's keep going. Jacob loved Rachel. So he answered Laban, I'll work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now we see plainly, Jacob loved Laban's younger daughter. Been there for a month. Yeah, he kissed her with a warm uh, greeting when he first met her, but now he's gotten to know her. He's in love with her. And so when Laban said, name your wages, Jacob said, let me marry Rachel. Let me marry Rachel. Remember that, that Jacob left Beersheba with nothing. He's all by himself. He's all alone. He has nothing uh, to, to bring with him. When Abraham sent his servant to Haran to find a wife for Isaac, remember all the stuff he brought? A, a caravan of camels loaded with gold and silver and jewels as, and, and garments and as gifts to give to the bride and to her family. But, but Jacob's got nothing to offer here. And so he offered his labor in exchange for marrying Rachel. But we need to understand this, okay? This is a different time and culture. Jacob is not buying Rachel from Laban. But in that day, it was customary for the bridegroom to pay a bride price for the, uh, to the bride's father. And the text tells us specifically that Rachel was a shepherdess. That means that she contributed to the family's income. And so in a case like hers, this bride price helped compensate for the family's loss of that income due to the loss of her labor after she got married and would leave. So Jacob was willing to give seven years' wages to Laban by working for him for free during that time in exchange for marrying Rebecca, uh, Rachel. I'll probably slip up on that again. This is why we have to keep bouncing back and forth from these chapters so we can keep everybody straight, right? And just like that, though, just like that, seven years passes between verse 19 and 20 as quickly for us as it did for Jacob. 19, 20 is seven years later. His mother, Rebecca, sent him to, her, to Haran for what she would assumed would, would be only a few days, Right? And that's exactly what those seven years felt like to Jacob because he loved Rachel so much. But things are about to get a lot more difficult for Jacob. Look at verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpha to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, it is not the custom in this place to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. After these seven years were up, Jacob, in true self-centered fashion, came to Laban and said, look, I gave you your work, now give me my wife. But instead of giving Rachel to Jacob as they had agreed upon, Laban gave Leah to him. Now, you might be thinking, shouldn't Jacob have been able to tell the difference between these two sisters? I mean, like, he's been in love with Rachel for seven years now, right? You would think he would know the difference. 
But we need to take the context into consideration here. It's likely that during the feast, Laban got Jacob drunk, okay, which would have impaired his judgment. It's dark when Laban, it says it's in the evening, it's dark when Laban sent Leah into Jacob's tent, which would have made it hard for him to see. Now, listen, they didn't have the kind of light pollution that we do now. So back then, dark was dark, okay? And Leah was most likely wearing a veil over her face according to their marriage customs. So let's just replay this for a second. Laban buttered up Jacob with a meal, Then he took advantage of his inability to see very well. See where this is going? And then he put Leah, the sister, in the clothes that her other sister should have been wearing. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. This is exactly what Rebecca and Jacob did to Isaac and Esau. It's the deceiver this time who got deceived. It's the deceiver this time, who got deceived. Not only was Jacob on the receiving end this time, but when he confronted Laban about Laban's shady switcheroo, Laban's response uh, exposed Jacob's own guilt for what he had done to his brother Esau. Laban said, look, around here, the younger does not go in front of the older. Gotcha, Jacob. Right? Now, I got to admit, as I was reading through this and studying, there's, there's a part of me that loves that Jacob got his little taste of his own medicine there. Am I the only one? Who doesn't like to see a little poetic justice when it happens to somebody else, right? Especially when you feel like that person is getting away with something that you don't think they should get away with. It feels good when they get caught in their own trap, doesn't it? This is the kind of stuff that fuels our social media feeds. We love reading about those mic drop moments like, uh, uh, or uh, comments like Laban. And we like to retweet them and share them on our wall and adding the words, just saying, before we hit that publish button, But while we are quick to circle like vultures feeding off of someone else's sins and their weaknesses and failures, we tend to be slow at recognizing and confessing our own. Robert Murray McShane was a 19th century Scottish preacher who died when he was 29 years old. But he didn't need long, he didn't need a long life to understand his own need for God's grace. You know what he said? This is his quote. The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Have you come to a place in your life where you can admit the same thing? Have you ever gotten angry over the injustice of someone else's sinful actions only to realize that you are just as guilty? Now, we should be righteously angry towards sin, but if we're honest, I think that we'd have to admit that oftentimes, most often, our anger is less than righteous. Oftentimes, we end up using it more as a way uh, to deflect attention away from ourselves and onto others out of the fear that our own sinful hearts might be exposed unless we expose someone else's first. Have you ever been there? You ever done that? 
That's why we need stories in the Bible like this one about Jacob and Laban. It reminds us that everyone is guilty of something. Everyone. Everyone is guilty of multiple things. It reminds us that sin not only makes us all capable of deceiving others, but it also makes us all capable of being deceived. None of us is above that. It also, sin is blinding. It's blinding. It also reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. You see, God wasn't giving Jacob divine payback here. He was giving him divine grace. God was allowing Jacob to feel the sting of the sin that Jacob had gotten comfortable with. He was letting Jacob learn the consequences of manipulating others for his own personal gain. God was helping Jacob understand the futility of self-reliance. He was teaching Jacob humility. And he was doing all these things because God had already promised Jacob that he would be with him and protect him and provide for him before Jacob had ever made any kind of commitment to God. Jacob still wants God to prove it. This was not punishment from a vengeful God. This was discipline from a loving, heavenly Father. You see, where we want to see retribution, God is going for redemption. We need to remember that one chapter in Jacob's life is not the full story. We would do well to remember that about each other too. One chapter in someone's life is not the full story. The same is true for all the people that God has providentially put into your life and to mine. Do you know anybody like Jacob? Someone who's concerned with themselves more than they are with anyone else? You know somebody who's strong-willed and stubborn, maybe deceitful? Do you see them taking advantage of others for their own personal gain? Listen, do you want them to get a taste of their own medicine? Or do you want them to taste and see that the Lord is good? Do you want them to be punished? Or do you want them to be transformed? Those are two different things. When you look at the fruit of the sin in their life, do you see the seed of it in your own? That will be a gauge for you and how much you are learning from the Lord about humility and dependence upon him. We need to trust that God is patiently working in someone's life, that the part that we see is only a chapter in a much larger story. Think of how often the Apostle Paul speaks to believers in the New Testament about how the old has gone and the new has come. We did that in Colossians 3 this morning for prayer time or that they've put off the old self and they put on the new self, or that they were once one way and now they're a totally different way because of Jesus. You know why Paul uses that language so often in the New Testament? Because we forget it so quickly, and we need to be reminded of it so often. As believers, we have this glorious promise that Jesus took our punishment upon himself so that we never again have to fear punishment from God. Instead, we can embrace his discipline because it's never meant to condemn us. It's never meant to condemn us. It's always meant to conform us more and more into the image of his perfect son. Christ paid the full 
penalty for all our sin when he died on the cross. And he rose from the grave to show that that payment was uh, was paid in full, that it was enough to satisfy the righteous anger of God forever. And to, to show that he has defeated the power of sin and death once and for all. Because we've put our trust in him, we've been covered in Christ's righteousness forever, and we've been given new life in him. You're not the way you once were. You're not the way you once were. You're different. God disciplines all of his children, all of them. It's actually how we know that we are his children, and he disciplines us because we all need to learn to depend on him instead of ourselves. Hebrews chapter 12, it's a famous passage on this. Listen to verses 7 through 11. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all his children receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he, God the Father, does it for our benefit. Listen to this. So that we can share in his holiness. No, dis- no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. John 1.12 says that all who receive Jesus by faith are given the right to be called children of God. Are you a child of God? Have you put your trust in Christ? If not, then why not embrace him wholeheartedly this morning and you'll find not only forgiveness for all of your sins, but total peace and reconciliation with God. You'll go from punishment to transformation. You'll come out from under God's wrath and you will come underneath his grace for the rest of your earthly life and for the rest of your eternal life. Why not embrace Christ? If you are a child of God, then embrace his loving discipline, even though it's painful, it hurts. Because it'll produce righteousness in you. After he found out what Laban had done, the only thing Jacob wanted to embrace at this moment was Rachel. He's mad. So after Laban explained his actions in verse 26, he made another proposal to Jacob. Look at verse 27. Complete this week of wedding celebration with Leah. And we will also give this, you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as, a, as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years Jacob didn't have to wait another seven years for Rachel, but he did have to work another seven years to pay the bride price for marrying her too. Now, we're going to take a break from Genesis next week for Easter. But when we pick back up at the end of chapter 29 and we look at chapter 30, two weeks from now, we're going to see that Jacob's marriage to Rachel only compounds his problems. It does not alleviate them. We need to understand, again, the context here. We're talking about polygamy and slaves. 
We can't ignore that, but we need to understand the context that it's in. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever command a man to take more than one wife. Nowhere. And God did not tell Jacob to do that here. We'll get more into that next time, but verse 30 leaves us with this hint that Jacob will need to experience more discipline from the Lord. And indeed, Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. Takes after his parents, doesn't he? Playing favorites. This chapter in Jacob's story reminds us that God's silence does not mean God's absence. God is working here. He's very much involved in Jacob's life, even while Jacob was relying on himself. God is very much involved in our lives too. And sometimes that involvement comes in the form of discipline from our Heavenly Father who loves us. Sometimes that involvement is painful. It hurts. But it's never punishment if you're in Christ. If you're a child of God, it's never punishment. It's for transformation. It's so that we learn to depend on him and not on ourselves. So let's embrace his discipline and let's see us for what it truly is. You know, it's grace. It's grace. It's uncomfortable grace, but it's still grace. It's grace to guide us on the journey when we seem to lost our way. It's grace for each chapter until the whole story is complete. It's grace that teaches us to walk in the righteousness that we've been given. It's grace that we don't have to work for, but always completes its work in us. Yes, that grace is painful. Yes, it hurts, but it's always, always, always for our good. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you do not give up on us. We thank you for the commitment that you have shown us through your son, Jesus. We thank you for all the ways that you've given us to participate in the divine nature, to be united with you as your children. Everything we need for life and godliness, Lord, you've provided. And we thank you, Lord, that that also includes your discipline. That because you love us, you don't just leave us to ourselves until Jesus returns. You go with us. You remain in us through your spirit. You abide in our minds and hearts through your word. And you give us the physical reminder of your presence through your church. Do it week in and week out so that we continue in that grace. Lord, Help us to embrace the discipline of our Heavenly Father. Help us to receive it in humility, to recognize it when you are giving it. Remind us that we are your children and that it is not punishment. It's not wrath. It is for our good and our transformation into the image of Christ who has paid our punishment, who's taken our wrath and given us his righteousness so that we can walk in it from here on out. We love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.